Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're starting a short series on the Psalms that we're going to do to finish out the summer months. Psalms is a unique book in the Bible. It's a collection of poetry and songs that each can be taken on their own terms. You could just read one psalm and it would be a cohesive unit, or you can read the entire book and they all fit together, contributing something unique to the overall message of the book. The book of Psalms is often called the hymn book of the church, as many of them were sung both individually and corporately. Some of them have have references to historical events, all actually with the life of David. Um, others have musical instructions and were, and were set to music and used in liturgical contexts. Uh, even our own Paul Vanderbile recently just set another psalm to words and we just sang it. Um, so ultimately, our goal in this study of the book of Psalms will be just like any other sermon series, to hear God's word in this particular um, context, to hear it speak to our human experience, to joy and praise, to anger and lament, to brokenness and sadness, to let God's word speak to all of our human experience. And as Walter Brueggemann puts it, the book of Psalms does something unique in that it invites us into the wholeness that comes in embraced brokenness. So this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 146, so you can follow along in your bulletins, your pew Bibles, or just listen while I read from Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose, ho- whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, teach us this morning. Show us in a greater way this morning how beautiful you are and how much you love us. Convict us of our sin and remind us that salvation is found in no one else. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I would self-identify somewhere solidly in between the binary categories of reader and non-reader. Now, I read read a decent amount as a child. But being just out of grad school for a little over a year, I'm still kind of recovering from all the books I had to read, a few too many long theological treatises. And at some point during my time in seminary, I was lamenting to a friend about how hard it was to keep up with all the reading I had to do. Um, And this friend is a PhD student, a really prolific reader, and he suggested that I start to read the conclusions of books before I read the rest of it. He said, if you read the conclusion of a book, you get the main themes, you can understand how you should be reading the rest, and often you can really understand a book well that way. So I asked around and I found out a lot of my friends were doing this. They weren't actually reading whole books, they were just reading the conclusion, and then maybe the start and end of each chapter, and it was how they kept up with all their reading. 
And so while you certainly wouldn't want to read Hemingway or Orwell or J.K. Rowling, for that matter, and read the last chapter of the book, wouldn't quite work with a novel. There are some books, and the, the book of Psalms is this way, that where you read the end, you understand the rest of it. The end of the book kind of gives you some hermeneutical keys. It gives you some key points to then understand the first chapters. And so the last five psalms of the book of Psalms in many ways help us do this. They help us understand how to read the first 145. And so the last five psalms are categorized as praise psalms or halal psalms from the Hebrew word to praise. And so each one of them ends and begins, which, as you notice, with this phrase, praise the Lord. The last five psalms all do this, and Psalm 146, which we're looking at, does the same. Praise the Lord, it says, at the start and at the beginning. And praise the Lord is a word we, is a phrase we use pretty often. We've already sung it multiple times. And it's, it's actually a literal translation of the word hallelujah which is another word that we use a lot, but we don't necessarily know what we're talking about. Hallelujah is ubiquitous enough in our language that even in other secular contexts, people will use it. I recently came across an advertisement for a dating app that was advertising hallelujah moments. Now, I find it extremely unlikely that this dating app was calling people to praise the Lord when their dates went well, but they simply meant this word as, a, as an exclamation of joy. My first date went well. Hallelujah. So what does it really mean then to refer to praising the Lord? What does it mean to say hallelujah? One of the best synonyms of the word that I think might help us understand what the psalmist means is boasting. To praise the Lord is to boast about him. Think about the last time you boasted about yourself or your child or a friend. A parent who boasts about their child might go on and on about their child's performance in sports or school or music. I'm sure we've all heard our share of boasting people. Boasting and praising at their core are involve the same thing. It's an explanation of why something is really great and why everyone around you should appreciate that. When you're boasting about yourself, that's what you're doing. You're saying, listen to all the reasons I'm so great. I think you should really appreciate me. So when we think about praising the Lord in many ways, especially in song, we're talking about boasting about the Lord, about who he is and about how awesome he is. So our psalmist begins this psalm, Psalm 146, with two commands, two imperatives. He says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is calling his readers and his own soul to praise the Lord, to boast in him, to acknowledge who he is, to celebrate who God is. And then after these two commands, as the psalms often do, they go from a corporate to a very individual perspective. Then the psalmist says, I myself will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So after these initial commands, we jump right into the only other command in this psalm. The only other command in this psalm comes in verse 3. Put not your trust in princes. The psalmist gives us a command in the negative. Do not put your trust in princes. Now, if we live 500 or maybe 1,000 years ago, this command might initially hit home a little bit more. Those reading early on might have thought of Assyrian princes or Babylonian princes or princes in the Greek and Roman empires. 
But the intent of this command still speaks to us today. A lot of translations will do the work for us and render this word influential people or powerful people or even generous people. So the idea is simple. When the psalmist tells us to not put our trust in princes, they mean do not put your trust in powerful people. There's a lot of powerful people in our lives, and I'm not sure who's coming to mind right now for you. Maybe the president or another politician or the CEO of your company, or maybe you're even thinking about yourself. But we're constantly tempted to put our trust in these powerful people. We constantly think that if we can align ourselves with someone powerful who will have our agenda in mind, what we want, what we think is good, and what we think is beautiful, then we'll be safe. Throughout much of the Old Testament, including the Psalms, a contrast is set up between God and idols, between God and false gods. The people of Israel were constantly tempted to worship false gods. Baal, Asherah, Marduk, they have all these crazy names, and there are tons of them. But the thing about idols, it isn't that the people of Israel really wanted to hang out with Baal. It wasn't like Baal was such a cool fertility god and they just want to spend time with them. It's that Baal was a means to the good life. This idea that this idol would give them access to what their hearts wanted, whether that was having enough to eat or having shelter or having a big family that would keep them safe, all these things that they wanted access to, they saw idols as a means to that end. And so inherently, that's what false gods, that's what idols are. They're means to an end. It isn't that you necessarily want that thing so badly, but you want what it can give you. It isn't necessarily that you want this powerful person to spend time with you. It's that you want what they can give you. So you see that idols were a means to an end, and in Psalm 146, the reason why people are putting their trust in powerful princes or powerful people is because they're a means to an end. We, we learn to trust in powerful people because we trust in them to get what we want and what we think is good for us. And for this reason, Psalm 146 speaks even more poignantly to us today, because we aren't tempted to offer a burnt sacrifice to Dagon, but we are tempted to trust in powerful people to put policies in place that will benefit us or to keep us safe or to fill our pockets with money. We're tempted to trust in our businesses to provide us financial security or our financial advisors to guide us into independence and wealth. And so powerful people become a means to an end. We define what the good life is. Health, wealth, independence, security, all these things that for us represent this perfect good life. And we trust in powerful people to get us those things. And so Psalm 146 rebukes us and says, do not put your trust in these powerful people. Verses 3 and 4 echo back to the Garden of Eden. It says, any son of man will die and return to the earth. There's even a play on, the wor on words here, as the Hebrew word for man and the Hebrew word for earth are the same, Adam or Adam. The allusion here is to the curse in Genesis 3. Because mankind sinned, we all end up dying. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so the psalmist argues that this trust in humanity is so unfounded 
because of this very curse that even the most powerful person in the world cannot escape, that ultimately their final destination is death. So this argument then begs the question, where is their salvation? The text says there is no salvation in the Son of Man, so where is their salvation? And how can we find this good life? Looking at verse 5, if the formula, blessed is he, sounds familiar, then you're on the right track. It's the last beatitude found in the Psalms. The psalmist here uses the same formula that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are weak and hungry. In Psalm 146, the psalmist says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So verses 6 through 9 all detail this grand reality of who God is. The psalmist, you see, is setting up this comparison, saying, look at man, look at who man is, and then take a long, hard look at who God is. And then you conclude who is better to have as your help. The psalmist begins by contrasting the eternal nature of God with the transitory nature of man. Man whose breath will depart and who will return to the earth, and God who made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He goes on to to lay out all of God's actions through history. But he doesn't get really specific like, like the psalmist often does in describing the exodus or being freed from the plagues, all those things. He stays kind of back and talks generally. But look with me at the groups of people who God interacts with and what he provides for them. It says that God provides justice for the oppressed, food to the hungry, freedom for the prisoner, sight for the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous. He watches over the sojourner and upholds the widow and the fatherless. You notice anything about those groups? They are all vulnerable and weak and needy. These are the people that God chooses to help. These are the people that God aligns himself with. Quite the opposite of the powerful princes. The oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the aliens, the widows, and the orphans. So God, the psalmist continues to set up this contrast. Why should we not trust in princes? Why should we not trust in powerful people? Because princes and powerful people, even the best ones, even the most well-intentioned ones, could be gone in the next instant. But God, an eternal God, cares for the weak and the needy and the oppressed, of which we find ourselves. And so what the psalmist is doing is giving us a bigger view of God. If we can have a bigger view of God, of who he is and how much he loves us, and then our view of man just shrinks, we end up trusting in God a whole lot more. Recently, a friend of mine was traveling in Alaska, and he went to see the tallest mountain in North America. The tallest mountain in North America is called Denali. It's a little over 20,000 feet tall. And my friend, being from the Midwest, didn't really have a category for what that would be like. I don't, I don't know what the tallest mountain in the Midwest is, but I just know it's very small. So, so he's going to see this 20,000 foot tall mountain. And so he has no, he has, they have no category for what it could possibly be like. 
Unfortunately, the day that they were going to go and see this mountain, it was really cloudy. Um, so they were really, really worried, but they still decided to drive and take the trip to go get a good viewing spot of this massive mountain Denali. And lo and behold, when they got there, the clouds had actually risen just enough that they could see Denali. And so they're staring at it, they're taking pictures, they're so excited to see this beautiful mountain. They're just blown away by how massive it is, how beautiful it is. And as they're taking pictures and just appreciating the beauty of this mountain um, as it hovers right below the clouds, someone walks up and just taps my friend on the shoulder and takes where they're pointing and then raises it all the way up. See, all this time my friends were looking at one of the smaller buttresses of the mountain, not the tip of the mountain. They were taking pictures of this little piece of what the mountain was, not knowing that above the clouds there was this massive actual peak of Mount Denali, 20,310 feet above the ground. They didn't have a category for how big and how amazing and awesome it could be. And I want to say this morning that this is often how we view God. We're looking at just a small piece of him. We're looking at just a little bit. And we need someone to tap us on the shoulder and to say, no, 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 look up. God is bigger and more amazing and more lovely than you could ever imagine. And we need someone to remind us of that because otherwise we just settle for what is right in front of us. And this is what the psalmist is seeking to do in this psalm this morning. He's seeking to have us reflect on the character of God, to give us a bigger view of who God is, to give us a more lovely view of God is. We can be enraptured by just a small part of God. There's, of course, he's beautiful and amazing. And just knowing a little bit about who God is, just knowing a tiny, tiny portion about how much God loves us is enough for us. But the bigger a view we get of God, the more we raise our view of him, the more we'll fall in love with him. And it also makes you feel really, really small. If you've ever stood in one of those mountain ranges, I'm like six foot four, but the, when I stand in a really, a really tall mountain range, I feel so, so small. But that's part of the beauty of learning more of who God is as well. He seems even bigger and more lovely and beautiful, and you seem even more small and insignificant, yet knowing that he cares for you. I sat for a few hours this week and stared at this command, praise the Lord. And I honestly was struggling to wrap my head around it. Praise the Lord. A lot of times we're not in seasons of life where that seems like a really appealing idea. A lot of times we're in seasons of life when, the, when a command to praise the Lord is more likely to be rebuffed and met with the answer of, for what? And so if that's you this morning, then I just want to say that the Psalms have space for you. If it feels disingenuous to sing praise the Lord when we saw it, sang it earlier, or if it seems disingenuous to hear that that is the command that's repeated over and over again, it feels weird for you to say that, and that's okay. I only know a tiny, tiny percentage of the struggles that are happening in the lives of our people. But I know that there's space for us, even if that command is hard for us to follow. Even if praising the Lord seems like the last thing that we really want to do. And so the psalm, this psalm this morning might seem like it doesn't have much for us if you're in that spot. 
But I want to say that what it has for you and what it has for all of us is this, this reminder that the most vulnerable, that the weakest, that the neediest are the closest to God's heart. That being really powerful, if you're a lot closer to a prince than you are to a beggar, that that isn't necessarily a good thing. And that this psalm provides space for you, no matter where you are in that spectrum. That you don't need to praise the Lord in some disingenuous way in order for God to care for you, because God's heart is for you wherever you are in that. And my prayer is that you would feel that this morning, that you would be comforted by this God who chooses to align himself with those people. He chooses to align himself not with the princes of this world, but with the beggars and the blind and the needy and the vulnerable. The psalmist tells us not to put our, our trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When you hear that phrase, son of man, though, you should maybe be thinking, Jesus calls himself the son of man quite a few times. Seventy times in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the son of man. And so the way, this beautiful way that God ultimately decides to come and be with us in our brokenness and in our suffering is by becoming the Son of Man. By becoming a Son of Man in whom there is salvation. Jesus comes as both the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is our help and our salvation. The author of Hebrews tells us, Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus comes as the embodiment of Psalm 146. He comes as the embodiment of the God who loves the broken and the needy and the beat down. He comes as the embodiment of the one who is a beautiful alternative to trusting in powerful people. Jesus says himself in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As Sarah and Cora read for us earlier, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus comes to us as the embodiment of Psalm 146. And so when we do not feel like we can say, praise the Lord, Jesus comes to us anyway. And the more we can see Jesus set prisoners free and open the eyes of the blind and watch over the foreigner and the widow and the orphan, then the more compelled we are to say, as the psalmist says, praise the Lord. So our application for this psalm is twofold then. First, we're to praise the Lord. We're to boast in who he is. We're to boast in what he's done throughout all of history, in scripture, throughout our own lives. We're to boast in those things and praise the Lord. And then secondly, we're to participate in the same work that Jesus is doing. We're to actively put our trust in God rather than put our trust in powerful people by doing, like the prophet Micah says, loving justice and showing mercy and walking humbly with our God. 
we're to actively align ourselves not with the powerful, but with the weak and needy of whom we count ourselves. And so as God works in us and through us, as we lean into God for comfort and rest, for salvation, we'll be able to realize in further and deeper ways how much he loves us and how big he is. The challenge of Psalm 146, of each of these last five psalms of the Bible, is to trust in God for our salvation, not man. This is the conclusion of the book of Psalms. There is no salvation outside the Lord, and for that reason we should praise him. The alternative to praising God is trusting in humanity. And we've all done that at various points and at various levels. And ultimately, the result of it is despair and cynicism. For no man, no powerful prince of this age, can provide the good life for us. Jesus came and he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so that is what he offers us. And it's at the end of ourselves, at the end of our trust in humanity, when we start to view ourselves as so small and so needy, that we start to see God get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we start to see him love us more and more and more. And as our view of God gets bigger and our view of our sin gets bigger, we see how much Jesus can fill in that gap and we see how much he loves us. And so my prayer for us as a church is that God would teach us new ways to see that goodness, to see how we can align ourselves with the God who reveals himself in scripture. And as we do that, we can sing even more faithfully and truly, hallelujah, praise the Lord, what a savior. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who came to embody all of what we needed. Thank you that this good life that we want is found in you, not in the things that the world can offer us. And so, God, I just pray for each one of us this morning that we would come to that realization in a further way today that you would convict us of the ways in which we're trusting in ourselves and trusting in powerful people and let us trust in you more. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.